Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, we ask if French President François Hollande's sharp turn to the right can kickstart his country's economy and boost his own political fortunes. And we hear from Damascus as Syrian President Bashar al-Assad prepares to face voters in an election that nobody else can win. But we begin in Ukraine, where pro-Russian separatists are occupying government buildings in a number of key cities in the east of the country, as Russian forces mass on the border. The interim government in Kiev issued an ultimatum to the demonstrators this week, but allowed the deadline to pass without taking any action against the armed separatists. Ukraine's acting president called on the United Nations to send peacekeepers to the country, as Washington and Brussels threatened to escalate sanctions against Moscow. Foreign ministers from Ukraine, Russia, the European Union and the United States meet in Geneva on Thursday to seek a diplomatic solution to the standoff as the rhetoric on all sides becomes more heated. To discuss the latest developments, I'm joined from Donetsk in eastern Ukraine by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin and here in studio by Irish Times foreign policy editor Patrick Smith. Dan, could you describe uh, what's going on where you are in Donetsk right now? Well, in Donetsk itself, this is a city of about a million people, one of the major industrial cities in eastern Ukraine, about 100 kilometers or so from the Russian border. The main um, local government administration building has been taken and held for a number of days now by uh, um, pro-Russian protesters. They have gone in there, they've set barriers up outside, uh, a sort of mini version of what we saw on Independence Square in Kiev um, in recent months. Um, Piles of tires out there, people standing around in balaclavas, holding shields, holding um, sticks and various other kind of makeshift weapons. Um, And they are saying that they will not leave until they are given the chance to have a referendum by um, by the central government in Kiev. This is a demand that's being uh, mirrored in lots of smaller towns around the region. We think that today, uh, nine, in nine towns around eastern Ukraine, um, either local government buildings or uh, police, local police headquarters or both, are held by people making the same demands. Um, and we've seen them stormed by people wielding, uh, wielding guns and wielding um, grenade launchers in recent days. Uh, in many of the cases, those armed men have moved on and they've left more lightly armed local people in, um, in charge of the buildings. So that's the situation around the region. In Donetsk, um, normal life is carrying on. People are going about their daily business, but there is a sense with a, a sense of rising tension, not just here, but across the region with the announcement from um, the acting president in Kiev, Alexander Turchinov, that an anti-terrorist operation has been launched in this region. Now, Moscow insists that the demonstrations are spontaneous and that Moscow itself is not coordinating them. Is that a plausible uh, thing for them to say? Um, It's not really very plausible. There are lots of um, uh, reminders here of what we saw in Crimea not so long ago. Uh, we're seeing um, in most of the cases w- w- um, around this region of the, the buildings being stormed and taken, we're seeing uh, very well-armed, very well-organized men in um, modern identical uniform in most cases, carrying modern Ru- Russian weapons, including the latest uh, Kalashnikov rifles, the latest uh, grenade launchers. They are moving in and taking these buildings, and then they seem to be backing away and leaving them to be looked after by uh, by local people. So um, 
lots of journalists have been out here and, and, and activists kind of looking around for, to, to try and find people who they could clearly identify as Russian soldiers. But as I say, they do seem to be going in. We've seen from footage in, in all these towns in the region, them go, uh, around this region, them going in, taking these buildings and leaving other people to look after them. We have seen some footage as well, interestingly, of in at least one town, a man who identified himself as a Russian army officer introducing himself to a group of police, local police, who had gone over to the side, side of the protesters. He introduced himself as a Russian officer, and he said that uh, he was now their commanding officer. Um, so it's, it's hard to see that this is purely spontaneous. It seems too well organized. The people seem too well armed. And it's also, it also happened in a very coordinated fashion across a, a relatively wide area of eastern Ukraine. Now, as you mentioned, the government in Kiev says that there is an anti-terrorist operation, as they call it, underway. But until now, Kiev has seemed somewhat uncertain in its response. How has the public been reacting to the way the government has been handling this? They're in a very, very difficult position now, this new government. I mean, obviously, they took over after the... the, the protests in, in Independence Square and other parts of, uh, in Kiev and other parts of the country. Yanukovych suddenly fled. Uh, they took over. Uh, the, the, the economy was on the brink of collapse. Then the Russians went in and annexed Crimea. Now they have to deal with this situation in the east. Um, and they're struggling to deal with it. They're having major problems with um, not only coordinating this anti-terrorist operation in the east of the country, but also um, over whether the, um, the people that they have out here in this region are capable of going through with this operation and whether they're actually willing to do it or whether their loyalties are more, t more towards uh, local leaders, um, uh, the, the people that they live with and among, of course, their neighbors, um, rather than this new government in Kiev that lots of people out here in the east don't feel, uh, they, they don't feel that this new government really represents their interests. On the other side, in Kiev and in central and western regions of, of Ukraine, where the government generally does have support and this, this uprising that toppled President Yanukovych does have support, they are demanding immediate, very strong action against the people who are, as they see it, out here in eastern Ukraine, trying to not only destabilize the region, but... Um, drag it away from Ukraine, and maybe even make it part of Russia. So this new government, struggling on all kinds of different fronts, is being pulled in very different directions. We also see people here in the East um, uh, more and more strongly, really, saying that we, will, we, we do not want any uh, armed intervention from security forces loyal to Kiev. And there is a big danger that uh, if they do crack down out here, it will only inflame the situation. It will turn local people out here against the, the government in Kiev and may give Moscow a pretext for further action in this region with ten, tens of thousands of troops not very far from the Ukrainian border at the moment. Paddy Smith, representatives from Kiev, Moscow, Brussels and Washington are meeting this week in Geneva. They're meeting for the first time since the Russian annexation of Crimea. What are they hoping to achieve? Well, it's a, it's a very important meeting. Uh, it, it will be the first time in, in effect that the Russian government will have formally acknowledged the legitimacy of, of the Kiev uh, administration. Um, and it's, it will be a very interesting place to test the water about Russian intentions. This is the big imponderable. It, does Putin intend to send troops across the border? Is he, uh, and I, I think still 
um, most of our observers would say it's it's less likely that he wants to do that, but that his strategy is to try and make the east of Ukraine as as autonomous as possible within a new federal structure. Now, one of the things that's being discussed in Kiev is the drafting of a new constitution, and he the the negotiators in in uh, Geneva will probably want to um, the Russians will probably want to push. Um, uh, Kiev on being more inclusive of of Easterners, of of the federal aspiration. They will probably want to talk about referendums, not just national referendum in in, in uh, uh, Ukraine, but uh, local referendums, which they clearly think that they would they would uh, be able to win. So it's a, it's really a question of of uh, the world being able to see some some glimpse of what Putin's intentions are. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Barack Obama have been talking on the phone, and it seems that Washington is prepared to get tough with him and to ratchet up the sanctions, at least, uh, against Russia. But the Europeans have so far held back from taking very serious action. Why all this foot-dragging in Brussels? Well, uh, there are are much more complicated interests at stake in in terms of the Europeans. You, You have German gas interests, you have French armaments deals with the with the Russians. You have the British, uh, the the city of London uh, has a heavy uh, uh, Russian in investment, uh, and they they are concerned that there will be a blowback if if they impose uh, more uh, sanctions. I think the 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 clear view in Europe is that. Uh, while they're willing to ratchet up the sanctions against individuals, which they will probably do in the, in the course of the next uh, uh, few days, uh, it would require a full Russian in- invasion uh, for them to, to, to contemplate moving on to the next stage of, of uh, sanctions, which would be against banks or against, against uh, the, the Russian state. Uh, Dan McLaughlin, uh, the mood in Ukraine now, uh, some uh, months uh, or some weeks after the, uh, the toppling of President Yanukovych, uh, has, uh, has the, the mood gone sour? Certainly in Kiev, it's, uh, they, they, the people who did support the revolution had very little time to celebrate. And they have all kinds of um, doubts about the new government. They have doubts about uh, uh, not only its, its ability to transform the country in the way that they want it to, but also their, their willingness to do it. They see various figures in government and, um, and, and very close to power who they see as figures from uh, the old days, the old uh, corrupt days, which they hoped were, were, were going to end when Yanukovych fled for Russia. Um, and now, obviously, they, they, they feel like their danger is in con- uh, their, their country rather is in danger of being pulled apart. Um, this is the major worry now. Um, and we're seeing a stronger, a, a deeper and deeper split in the country, really. I mean, looking ahead to the planned elections on May 25th, the presidential elections. Uh, we've seen just in the last couple of days candidates from uh, from the east of the country who you could say represent this region and represent the the the, the Russian-speaking population, the very very large Russian-speaking population in Ukraine. They've been um, one of them was was quite badly beaten up last night. Another one was uh, was covered in flour and 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 sprayed in a kind of green ink. Um, other candidates have been sort of roughed up, and people in the East are certainly feeling more and more like this government is turning against them, and 
people in the West who support the government are feeling like um, the, the euphoria is certainly gone, and they're wondering whether uh, the revolution that they hoped would transform the country for the better may actually be leading the country into, um, into some kind of disaster. Daniel McLaughlin in Donetsk, thank you. French President François Hollande reacted to his Socialist Party's disastrous showing in last month's municipal elections by sacking his Prime Minister and giving his government a thorough facelift. The new Prime Minister, Manuel Valls, has signalled a dramatic shift in policy, promising to streamline French bureaucracy, cut public spending and lower taxes. So far, the changes have done nothing to boost the President's popularity. A poll this week showed his favourable rating down 5 points to 18%. But can they turn around the French economy? To find out, I'm joined from Paris by our correspondent, Lara Marlowe, and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. Lara, how big a change in direction are we seeing under Manuel Valls? Uh, it's very much a cosmetic change at the moment. I mean, Valls is, is a huge contrast to Jean-Marc Ayrault. He's, he's younger, he's, he's a decade younger, he's got a lot more charisma, uh, he's a good orator, uh, but there, there's no real... Uh, the, the steps that Valls is supposed to take, this pact of responsibility which uh, Hollande announced in January, the, the French government has said all along under Hollande that it would cut spending and, and make reforms and so on. The problem is they make promises, 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 and they never do it. Uh, Valls is saying it seemingly with more conviction. Uh, there was, there's been one big fudge since he was uh, appointed two weeks ago. The Hollande administration had made it quite clear they were going to ask Brussels for another delay. I think it would be the third or fourth in meeting the 3% uh, deficit seating requirement. And Valls yesterday in Berlin uh, said France will keep her commitments. They, the French were quite uh, severely lectured by both the EU Commission and the finance minister on a trip to Washington uh, was read the Riot Act by the IMF. So the French suddenly have done a big turnaround, uh, which is, you know, Valls will get credit for. They're saying, yes, we'll, we'll meet the commitment after all. And even before he became prime minister, Valls was the most popular member of François Hollande's government. Why is he so popular? He's nominally a socialist, but he's a very much a law and order. Uh, he was the law and order interior minister. Uh, he really copied Nicolas Sarkozy in many ways. Uh, Sarkozy wanted the interior minister ministry. Uh, the interior ministers are always popular because they, they represent law and order. And he was very tough on the Roma, uh, which is a, a big issue here. Even today, the, um, there's a big controversy because the, the mayor of the 6th arrondissement, the, the most luxurious arrondissement in Paris, says he wants all the Roma out of his arrondissement. So that was a popular move. Uh, he's good-looking. He's charismatic. His wife is a concert violinist. Uh, She's very attractive, and she's friends with lots of uh, sort of show business celebrity types. Uh, So he just he just has a kind of glamour and pizzazz that uh, that nobody else in the Socialist Party has. And he appeals to the right, which none of the other socialists do. Um, People like, say, Christian Taubira, the Justice Minister, who pushed through uh, same-sex marriage, is extremely unpopular with the right wing, with the traditional values people. Uh, and Valls uh, appeals to them. He, his biggest problem is with, is with the left of the left. They don't trust him, and they say he's, he's not really a socialist. Now, Mr. Hollande has no glamour or pizzazz, but he does have a very interesting personal life. And he, as part of the reshuffle, he's appointed his former partner, Ségolène Royal, as ecology minister. Has that raised any eyebrows? 
Uh, yes. Uh, well, for one thing, she had the same job uh, several decades ago, so she's kind of going back to square one. She is. She is thrilled. She's. You, all you have to do is you just see her glowing uh, at the at Vols's policy speech last week. She actually sat next to Vols, which she wasn't meant to be there. Uh, this was when he took his seat after his speech, and the uh, the ushers in the National Assembly kept going up to her and saying, "Madame, that's not where you're supposed to be sitting." And she just sort of told them where to go. And, and, and stood her ground. Uh, but she is really, really thrilled to be back in the circles of power. And she's also uh, announced that she will oppose um, the, the eco-tax, which is a very unpopular tax on, on petrol. And she's making all sorts of public pronouncements about uh, ecology and, and uh, petrol and, and taxes and, and so on. So she's, um, she's very fit and, and happy to be back in the, in the sun. And Monsieur Hollande's personal life, has that now gone out of the headlines? <laughs> it's out of the headlines, but it's not out of the gossip mill. Um, it obviously comes up in every conversation. I had dinner with a couple of journalists uh, a few nights ago. Um, the, no one is really sure if he's still with Julie Gaillet, the, the actor, or not. Uh, one line I'm hearing is that her family, who are sort of left-wing Catholics, said to her, you know, this is just out of the question. You've got to stop this. Uh, another line I'm hearing is that she was just appalled when she came out of her apartment building one morning and saw 50 paparazzi waiting for her and decided it wasn't really worth it. Um, I've also heard a rumor about one of the new secretaries of state, those are junior ministers in, in the new cabinet, who might or might not be involved with Mr. Hollande. So uh, your guess is as good as mine, Dennis. <laughs> Patty, France's neighbours in Europe have been watching Paris anxiously for the past few years, particularly where the economy is concerned. Are they now cheered by the new broom that the new Prime Minister represents? I, I think that they will, as, as Lara has said, be quite sceptical. Uh, uh, and they will want, want to wait and see uh, how how much she's prepared uh, to go down the the, uh, the road that, that he's promised. Uh, certainly the announcement on the 3% deficit uh, is important and will be welcomed in, in capitals. But they're a little puzzled, for example, by the appointment of Anna Montebourg, who's an economics minister, who is very anti-austerity and very much a, a interventionist, state interventionist in terms of economic policy and represents the left of his party. And the, um, the other thing is the ecologists have dropped out of, of the, uh, the, the cabinet altogether. Um, so it, it's a question of waiting, waiting uh, to see. Uh, one of the other things, of course, which people internationally have been much interested and amused by is the agreement, which isn't strictly speaking a government agreement, but uh, one between the employers and the unions to introduce uh, measures to make sure that people are not tormented in the evenings by their uh, employers on the on on social media and in on the on the internet. So I was wondering, actually, Lara, are you going to be switching off your email at six o'clock in the evening? No, absolutely, Patty. <laughs> 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 and, uh, of course, among the big winners uh, last month were the uh, the National Front, uh, the far right National Front. Paddy, can we expect big gains for them in the European elections next month? Oh, I think I think that's absolutely certain, and it'll be mirrored in 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 other countries throughout uh, uh, Europe. It's going to be one of the features of of the election. The only caveat is is that if the parliament can can generate sufficient excitement that the turnout will be pushed up and if the turnout is up 
it's less likely that the far right will do well either in France or another European country. Lara, Marine Le Pen has partially detoxified her party of her father's racist, anti-Semitic image. How serious is she now as a contender for the presidency next time round? Uh, it's, it's, there's a small chance she could make it to the runoff in 2017, as her father did back in, in 2002. It's a small chance, but if, if the French voters are confronted with a choice of Nicolas Sarkozy or, or François Hollande, which was the, the rather unpalatable choice they had last time, uh, a lot of people think that, that Marine Le Pen could actually make it to, to the runoff. Now, Valls as prime minister uh, presents a whole new configuration, because if he can maintain the sort of levels of popularity that he has now. I mean, 58% is absolutely astonishing. No French minister, uh, prime minister has been this popular in, in as long as I can remember. Uh, obviously, Valls becomes a main contender for the presidency, and, and certainly at the moment he would, he would beat out Marine Le Pen. Uh, but I, it would be a political earthquake if she made it to the runoff. And if she did, the predictions are that, unlike her father, Jean-Marie, who got 18% in, in the runoff uh, back in 2002, Marine Le Pen would probably be up there in the, in the sort of 40 percentile range. Um, it would be a much closer call this time. Finally, Lara, after all the reshuffling of his government and his domestic life, has Francois Hollande any chance of recovering popularity himself? Uh, I think character is destiny, and uh, the man just doesn't doesn't have what it takes. He's not uh, he's not an inspiring leader. Um, even Valls is quite limited because he he has to execute Hollande's policies, and Hollande's policy is to always try to keep everybody happy all the time. And even uh, Valls's excellent uh, for policy address, general policy address last week, uh, it, it struck everyone afterwards. It all sounded great. But he was giving away a 40 billion euro in tax cuts to businesses and to um, modest households in France. And he promised to cut 39 billion euro. So they're still throwing money uh, at, at their problems, trying to spending more and more and trying to keep people happy. Uh, cutting 39 billion when they've got to cut. 50 billion is what they've said, and giving away another 40 billion. So it, the, the accounts just don't add up. So unless Hollande becomes suddenly incredibly courageous and, and, and changes character, I don't really see a change in his fortunes. Lara Marlowe in Paris and Patty Smith here in Dublin, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. His country is torn apart by a civil war that has killed more than 120,000 people and displaced 4 million from their homes, 3 million of whom are living as refugees outside the country. But Syria's President Bashar al-Assad is pressing ahead with a presidential election sometime in the next few weeks. The Syrian government is promoting the election as a major breakthrough in multi-candidate democracy. The trouble is that most of Assad's real opponents are barred from becoming candidates because they're in exile, and millions of Syrians won't be allowed to vote for similar reasons. Last time Assad stood for election in 2007, he won 97.6% of the vote. So how will he do this time? I'm joined now from Malula, outside Damascus, by our Middle East analyst Michael Jansen. Michael, could you describe where you are and what's going on there? Well, I'm in a convent on top of a hill in Malula. It is, the convent has been ruined. It has been destroyed. The, the structure of the building is okay, but it's been completely trashed inside. And below in the valley, there is fighting going on between the army 
and the um, Nusra Front, which is uh, connected with Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic Front, and the Islamic State, Iraq, and Syria. Uh, the uh, the pro-Assad forces have uh, recaptured this uh, town of Malula, uh, but in in a more general way, are we seeing any kind of breakthrough on either side militarily after three years of civil war? Well, there certainly is a lot of uh, uh, movement on the ground now here. Uh, I came through, uh, we came a long way to get to Malula so that we could arrive on top of the city because actually the, the uh, jihadi forces are still down below and they are uh, shooting, there are snipers and there are heavy explosions from time to time. The rest of the countryside here has been recaptured by the army. There have been battles all, the, all across the top of Damascus and we came through a, a city called Yabrud, which was a battleground about a month ago, which is completely deserted, and many of the houses have been torched. At least the interior of the houses are burned. Michael, you're describing a, 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 a place, a country that is still very much in the grip of civil war, and yet President Assad is pressing ahead with this presidential election. What sense does it make to have a presidential election in this context? Well, I, um, I did uh, speak to the deputy foreign minister yesterday, um, Mr. Faisal McDad, and he said that they had to go ahead with an election because it's in the Constitution and the president's term is coming to an end. Uh, the problem is if there isn't an election, he said there would be a vacuum. Now, the point of this situation on the ground in Syria is the civil war is actually going on in pockets. It's not all the way across the country. So that you can drive through a place which is completely destroyed, and then five, two seconds later, you're in a place which everything is fine. And I was in Homs the other day. I went to Babel Amr, which is the most destroyed part of Homs. Uh, which is in a very bad state, but the rest of the city is normal. And I actually met people coming out of church from a Palm Sunday service. So, it, it, as I say, the civil war is progressing in pockets. And at the moment, the Syrian army is clearing out the pockets of uh, insurgents around Damascus in what is called the Damascus countryside or Rift Damascus. And there would, there would be people who would be able to vote, although, of course, the refugees and the, many of the, the, the internally displaced people will not be able to vote. And the, the Syrian opposition and the Western powers have long been demanding that Assad must go before there can be any uh, lasting or durable peace. It doesn't look like he's going anywhere, does it? It doesn't look like he's going anywhere. I, I did speak to some United Nations people uh, yesterday while I was here, and they were speaking off the record. But they predict that Assad will be able to clear the central part of the country, whereas the borders will still remain porous, and insurgents will come and go through the borders.
And so you don't see then on the basis of that that there's actually any end in prospect uh, in terms of the fighting, that even if, uh, you know, if Assad can control a certain part of the country, that essentially in the border areas at least you're going to continue to have an insurgency. Yes, and uh, I mean, at the moment, the big battle will probably uh, focus on Aleppo. But again, the, actually in the so southern part of the country, I think the borders will probably uh, calm down a bit because the Jordanians don't want to have uh, fighting on their borders. Whereas the Turks, they are uh, definitely participants in this civil conflict. And they want to see Assad go, and they are willing to go to great lengths to make sure that he does go. Uh, finally, uh, Michael, uh, in, in your conversations with people uh, in the administration, in the Assad regime, how confident do they feel that they will, in fact, be able to see off this uh, insurgency and retain control of the country and remain in power? Well, uh, they are quite confident. And uh, one of the things which is not known very uh, widely is that there is reconciliation going on. And uh, there are... Um, at least Syrian soldiers who have revolted against the government being given amnesty. And um, the reconciliation is progressing quite rapidly. Uh, it is expected that reconciliation in Homs will take place shortly. I met the Minister for Reconciliation yesterday. And uh, they are working very hard to, to get the reconciliation for Homs settled within the next week or two. Michael Jansen, Outside Damascus, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. From producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer JJ Vernon, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.